Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your health care. Welcome to the podcast, The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Today, I have a very special guest, a doctor who strives in many different ways to make all doctors better, and also at the same time, teach the public how medicine works. If you are a New York Times devotee, as I am, you will be familiar with Dr. Lisa Sanders for her super popular biweekly column in the Sunday New York Times magazine section titled Diagnosis. The diagnosis column was born out of Dr. Sanders' fascination with how doctors make and miss diagnoses. Her wonderful book, Every Patient Tells a Story, depicts her own struggle and that of many fully trained doctors who have difficulty in coming to a timely diagnosis. Doctors and readers alike love the suspense and the engaging writing that Dr. Sanders takes you through until a mysterious medical malady is uncovered. Although these are all real-life cases, it sounds like it was made for TV, and it was. Dr. Sanders was the technical medical consultant for the popular TV show House MD. And in other words, she had to keep the writers on track to make sure the diagnostic dilemmas and mystery diagnoses were all as true to life as possible. When she wasn't wearing her TV hat, she was and has been quite busy training the next generation of Yale medical students and residents to become the best doctors they can be. She is an associate professor of medicine at Yale School of Medicine, where she teaches primary care medical residents. She will be coming out in August, and I just can't wait, with her new book, Diagnosis, Solving the Most Baffling Medical Mysteries, a collection of her New York Times columns. And I can't wait for that, so I'm pre-ordering it. And also, what's very exciting, I feel like I have a lot of exciting stuff to tell here, she has a Netflix documentary series coming out that will be released in August. And if you Google New York Times Magazine, you'll be able to get a link to that and see a trailer on that. It really has to be a must-see for anyone who is interested in their health. So without further delay, I am so excited again to welcome Dr. Lisa Sanders to the podcast. Hi. Hi, Dean. Okay. So it's great to have you on. I have to tell a quick story for the listeners. The story is when I was growing up and I was uh, in high school and I was kind of a little bit of a tennis jock and, of course, my dream was to become John McEnroe or Bjorn Borg and not necessarily become a doctor, but my dad who truly believed that you should be well-educated and insisted that I read the New York Times. And New York Times, for me, was like the sports section was really small and weren't a lot of pictures, but he pursued to get me to read it. And over the years, I've not only come to love reading the New York Times, it's you know just something that I have to do every day. And more importantly, my favorite day to get the New York Times is Sunday. It's a big stack of the Times, but the first thing I go to is the magazine section is because I want to read and see if the column by Dr. Lisa Sanders is there on diagnosis. So that just shows you where my my heart lies. So anyway, again, thank you for being on and we're going to really helpfully educate our listeners. But the first question I have to ask you, being not only a writer and a doctor, you're a teacher of medical students and residents. Is it truth or myth that July is the most dangerous time to get sick and be in the hospital? 
Well, we know for sure that it's not true. And we know that because it's actually been measured, because that was such a common statement. You know, people would just say it as if it were true. And it's been measured. It's been measured, not true. And you're saying that because, I mean, again, you have firsthand, you see when those new medical students arrive as interns. And as you mentioned in your book, which was so interesting, and I know that experience, when all of a sudden comes July 1st, you're no longer the intern with somebody looking over your shoulder. You're the second year resident now in charge of the interns. So besides the statistics, again, being in the hospital, working with them, you feel there's really no difference. You know, it just means that the attending works a little bit harder. That's true. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's true. Right? We all just watch and and make sure everything goes well. Because I feel about residents the way I felt about my kids when they were teenagers. I want them to feel like they're making their decisions, feel like this really counts. But I just want to make sure my job is to make sure that nothing really bad happens to them or to their patient. Yeah, I think that's a great perspective. I mean, you're really the coach. I, I say to my own kids, I said to them, I can't be the player. You're the one on the court in the ring. I could be on the sidelines giving you some advice. But ultimately, it's up to you to go out there and, and swing away, so to speak. Okay, so that was like a little bit of a, a teaser, but uh, I was just curious. Again, I, I've taught the Columbia Medical students for years, and now I'm at Turo, and you know, I, always, I find it a little bit exhilarating sometimes at the beginning of the year because everybody is so, has a lot of high energy and they're nervous. Let's go to the writing hat of Dr. Sanders. You know, with the popularity of your column diagnosis, and I am sure you receive hundreds, maybe thousands of written submissions, how do you decide or choose what to print? I pick stories that appeal to me. I'm interested in the issue of diagnosis. And so not lots of stories are sent, but not, not all of them have to do with diagnosis. And it's not the same thing having an interesting diagnostic process and having a rare diagnosis. I mean, sometimes those two things coincide, but really it's not the same. And I'm interested in seeing how interest, you know, how the human brain works. And, you know, it's not, I mean, uh, diagnosis happens to be what I write about, but really it's just how the brain works and how we think and how human beings figure things out and are interested in, th- in figuring things out. So I picked the cases that appeal to me. I like it when the patient is really engaging. I like it when the doctor is really engaging, but none of those things really has to happen. It just has to be interesting. So they submit to you, I guess like how we did in medical training, essentially a case report. And then do you go on to interview the doctors? Do you ever speak to the patient directly to get more history? You do? Okay. No, I know. It's such a, no, the writing is Uh, so good that that's what it seems like, but I just didn't know if you had the time or again, felt it was appropriate. So yeah, so you do a deep dive into obviously speaking because it does, it sounds like you're, you know, the way you capture the conversations that doctors have with other doctors that that wouldn't come across in a case report. So, so you do actually speak to them and obviously have your approach to make the story as interesting and revealing as possible? Absolutely. I mean, I, I talk to the patient first because oh, I have to get the patient's written consent. Mm. The doctor would not talk to me no matter who I was without the patient's written consent because it's against the law. Right. <laughs> Good old HIPAA. Nobody wants to Everybody break the HIPAA Everybody knows about HIPAA. Laws. Even the patients know about HIPAA. That's why they fill out so many so forms. So I definitely have to take get the patient's permission. You know, doctors can only guess at what has happened to a patient. I mean, because when we listen, we're listening for certain clues. We're listening for certain kinds of things. When I listen, 
I'm listening to the patient's story. And sometimes that's the same thing, but usually it's not. I mean, it includes lots of details like where they were and what they were doing, what they were wearing. You know, I mean, it's, you know, I try to, I'm interested in what really happened. Of course, I'm interested in what they had also, but it's a different kind of questioning. And I get many more details than are needed to make a diagnosis. But that's really important, too, because you you mentioned this in the book. It's how I like to approach with my patients, too, is really almost approaching as being a medical detective. And as we all know, a detective needs to get a lot of details. You mentioned in the book, and we can get into this, that sometimes doctors were trained to ask very pointed questions, which... Obviously, with time constraints, may be very important. Obviously, if someone's having acute chest pain, to get the exact questions answered quickly as possible. But in especially chronic illnesses or difficult cases, the kind that I even see in my own practice in New York, I approach it as a medical detective. And I, like you, I the first thing I'll say to a patient is, "Let me hear your story." It, and uh, can sometimes patients can wander and you know maybe give you a little bit too much details about what they ate, you know, for breakfast. But again letting them get comfortable, and you've shown that in story after story, some pearl of wisdom comes out. And and I like to think of ourselves as medical translators, essentially, you know, to help make those diagnoses. Exactly. Exactly. We're taking the patient's, I mean, as doctors, we're taking the patient's story and translating it into the kind of information that we need. But as a writer, you're taking a whole bunch. You're gonna you're gonna get a whole bunch of other stories as well, and that's also important. All right, let's move on to the next thing, which really is an underlying theme in your books, is becoming a great doctor. And I get from the sense from your book, which again I loved, really loved. And the underlying theme is, what does it take to become a great doctor? Uh, I think it's your secret passion, but I got to share with you, it's mine as well. It's why I'm doing this podcast because as doctors, a lot of times, if I think if you really always have a little bit of that sense of inadequacy that you just want to get better. And we also always have that deep dive. We're not smart enough, proficient enough. Um, and unfortunately, in your book, you show that at times. So what would you say to a family member choosing a doctor or to one of your residents? What are, what are the qualities that someone should look for in a good clinician or a master clinician, would you say? Well, really, most of the time, you don't need a master clinician. Most of the time, you need somebody who's just interested in what you have to say and what's going on with you. You know, if you need a genius, you're in big trouble. If you need that master clinician, you know, I mean, most of the time, you're fine without a master clinician. So I tell people that when they're looking for a doctor, they have to figure out what it is they want from a doctor. You know. I go to a doctor and I just want, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time there. I just want to go and I want him to tell me, boom, boom, boom. Okay. Exactly. It, don't <laughs> sugarcoat it. Just let's get on with it. My husband, you practically have to take him out to dinner to tell him what his blood pressure is. So you have to think about what you want. It's also helpful if you can articulate. If, it's good if you know what you want because then you can articulate it to the doctor and say, this is what I need to know and how I need to know it. But in the difficult cases, you know, when people have been to several doctors and they haven't gotten better, I'm just, I'm just asking if there's a, I mean, I th- I'm going to bring up some things later on, but that certain qualities that, you know, in uh, a physician that uh, helps make some tough diagnosis, but nothing really jumps out at you or? Oh, oh yeah, many things. I think that first, 
of course, somebody who has the time and the interest to actually listen to you, listen to the whole story, just like what you say to your patients um, when they first come in. Tell me, you know, tell me your story. And you want somebody who not only says that, but actually then listens when you do tell it. I think that's important. Somebody who actually touches you is important. Somebody who looks at you. You know, I it's not like I don't write on the computer while I'm seeing my patients, but I I don't have to look at the keyboard to look at my patients. I don't click any boxes. I don't do that, but I take notes so that I don't forget. Right. I did that before I used it. I did that when there were paper charts as well. You know, you write things down that you want to make sure you don't forget that will help you put the story together. But you want somebody who looks at you and is paying attention, and you want somebody who actually examines you, and then somebody who tells you what they're thinking. I mean, maybe not everybody wants to know that, but I think that when you're very sick or you have a diagnosis that other people haven't been able to make, then you want somebody who's going to tell you how they're thinking. And if you can't hear that because you're too sick or too worried, then you need to bring somebody with you who can hear that because that turns out to be really important. That is really important. Those That extra pair of eyes and ears, I, I agree with you. That's a great tip, by the way, for uh, patients that are sick and they really shouldn't be embarrassed about bringing along a family member, a close friend, because a lot of times, too, like as you said, too, they'll forget things or they're just not absorbing everything. So, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's that's a great point. I think also, you know, and if you can't, you should bring a tape recorder and ask your doctor if you can record them. Any real doctor will say, oh, no, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. If somebody says, I don't want you recording me, then maybe you're in the wrong place. Then I would say that other important qualities in a doctor is somebody who's willing to let you know that they are unsure of what the diagnosis is. We're going to get into that. That's very important, too. Not, as you point out, and we all know, nobody has all the answers. If they say right off the bat they know all the answers, I think that is a, a bad sign you know, for the patient. I think, yeah. And I think that it's not that they're never going to get to the answer. It's just that sometimes people come in with, and they tell you their symptoms and they look at you and they know the answer right away. And let's just assume they're right. And that's great. But there are lots of times when you have to think about it. You know, in my column, people say, uh, people, I, I don't write about dumb doctors. Let me, this just in, there are, there are not very many of them, but there are doctors who either are stupid or do dumb things. We aren't 100% every day of the week. We wish we were, but that is not the case. So I don't write about dumb things that happen or things that happen because somebody wasn't tuned in. I only write about difficult diagnostic dilemmas. And yet, no matter what, the doctors who didn't get it, even though they're setting it up so that the next doctor can get it, my readers always think that those doctors missed something that they should have gotten. Sometimes they miss something that they should have gotten, but more commonly, they're ruling out the more ordinary things so that the next doctor who comes in can go, oh, well, it's obviously somebody has looked at you and you don't have this, this, or this. So here's the next rare batch of things that you might have. And so all those doctors are important in making the diagnosis. Yeah, that's really important, too. You know, there's that aphorism, you know, we had in residency. We used to hear the third doctor is the best doctor. And, of course, the third doctor, meaning maybe at that point, 
the signs and symptoms of the illness have presented themselves and other things have been ruled out. So the third doctor looks like the smartest doctor. If he'd been the first one online, he might have been appeared so smart. So yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And I, I think it's really important that specialists, you know, I sort of wear a couple of different hats, never denigrate their primary care doctors who are on the front lines and are seeing sometimes an initial presentation, which could be very subtle, that doesn't reveal itself. And until that person has been to several doctors and now comes to the specialist and they are working in their small area, which we're going to get to about things out in your book also, and they're able to make that diagnosis because it's a lot more clear. What's your specialty? How do I describe all this? I you know I was trained in internal medicine. I did a fellowship in infectious disease, allergy, and immunology. And so I did a lot of infectious cool. disease training during the AIDS epidemic. And then in practice, since it was private practice, I started really doing a lot of allergy. And now my practice, honestly, has morphed into, I do a lot of holistic medicine, which I think I try to do state-of-the-art stuff. So I find it very interesting. And uh, the immunology is sort of the, the dominant theme. I want to go on to the next thing that comes across in, in your work is the patient experience. And I love this quote in your book. The experience of being ill can be like waking up in a foreign country. Life as you formerly knew it is on hold while you travel through this other world as unknown as it is unexpected. And I have to tell you, this reminds me of another one of your Yale colleagues, Dr. Bernie Siegel. Do you remember him, the Yale surgeon who wrote Love, Medicine, and Miracles? I've spoken to him, wonderful man. And he had a quote he used to give in his lectures, the doctor is the tourist of the land. The patient is the native. And I loved mm-hmm. always translating this, you know, for people to realize, you know, as doctors, we see people coming through and, and hopefully we don't have every illness that our patients have. And sometimes I believe only a patient can get the same experience or even sympathy from another patient battling that same kind of disease. And I think that comes through, you know, in your, you know, in your work and in this statement, because, you know, the, one of the things which is always so interesting about your writing is that, you know, you'll be telling the story. This patient was going along, they were 25, they were 30, they were healthy, even 50, they were healthy. And then all of a sudden, boom, their world changes and everything spinning out of control. Do you think there is a disconnect at times between the doctor and the patient's perception of their symptoms? And is there any way to bridge that divide? Sure. I mean, I think that as a human being, we talk to people all the time who have things going on with us that we don't haven't experienced ourselves. I mean, that is the the fundamental experience of say reading or going to the movies is that we are tra- we are fellow travelers along somebody else's journey, somebody else's adventure. And of course, those of us with a liberal arts education spent years thinking about what that means. But I think even just the regular reader, we all do that all the time. And I think that one of the problems with the way doctors are trained is we don't teach them to recognize that that's what this is. Doctors are often so worried about getting the right answer that they forgot, forget to listen as human beings with open ears and an open heart and an open mind, not an empty mind, but an open mind to what our patients are telling us about their experience. I don't think we have to experience it to connect with them on an emotional level. I mean, I think we can see, and I think we can see and feel. I mean, that's how you diagnose depression, right? When you walk out of the room and feel like you want to throw yourself out the window, you realize, oh, that patient must be really depressed. 
Now, you brought up a really fascinating thing just now that I, I want to stop to talk about because I, I discuss this with patients. Because sometimes patients will say to me, you know, why, why doesn't my doctor believe about doing this alternative treatment or, you know, this thing? And you just said something, and I, and I know your background, which I, I wanted to mention to the listeners also. That, and I say, you know, a lot of people that go into medicine are very scientifically trained. And also most of our exams have been multiple choice, meaning there was always an answer. And doctors, especially the very scientific ones, want to know that there's always an answer. And there isn't always an answer. And I know your background, a little bit different than mine. I mean, you were like a journalist. You were involved in television. And so that that training, again, of listening to stories and being open with uncertainty, I think that's what makes you such a good doctor and obviously a good writer. And that's, again, what I try to parlay to the doctors that I train you know, that there's not always going to be an answer. And uh, I'll never forget once, I think it was in Naomi Remen's book, she wrote two great books, My Grandfather's Blessings and Kitchen Table Wisdom. And she was a doctor that had her own serious illness with ulcerative colitis her whole life. And one time when she was very sick, and it turned out she had microabscesses in her abdomen, but she was sick for months with a fever. And she went to this really top surgeon who examined her, a very kindly doctor. And he didn't know at the time what was going on. He says, Dr. Remen, we're going to have to just sit and wait, but together. So she didn't feel alone until this declares itself. So I just wanted to make the point that, yeah, I think that it's really having that open mind uh, to the unknown and, and going through it with the patient so that they don't feel, you know, they don't feel alone. Um, you know, I'm always also struck by your cases, which I, again, find so interesting, that the timeline or duration until the fi- final diagnosis can be quite long. It could be months or years in some cases. What's your opinion why you think that's the case? You know, I think sometimes diseases don't look like how what you think they ought to look like. And sometimes people have something rare. You know, I think that the disease that took me, that not took me, didn't take me any time at all to diagnose it because I only write about soft cases, but took the patient years to get a diagnosis. And it was the first time I wrote about porphyria. You know, there are diseases that I love so much that I just can't wait for somebody to call me up or send me a case or for me to run across an abstract at a, at a conference or hear a case report. And porphyria was one of those things. And after, after I'd been writing my column for years, I just thought, well, screw it. And I just called up the American Society for Porphyria or whatever it's called. And I said, do you have any good cases, difficult diagnoses? And of course they did. And the one that I wrote about. I love that one, by the way, the one with the psychiatrist who diagnosed it. It was a psychiatrist that diagnosed, I think. Well, not this one. Not, the first time I wrote about porphyria was even before that was a woman who had had like a hysterectomy. I mean, she had had multiple surgeries on her abdomen because she had this weird abdominal pain and she was married to a gastroenterologist. So of course oh. she had access to all the best doctors and nobody could figure it out. And she finally went to, maybe it was a neurologist. I can't quite remember now. It was either a neurologist or a dermatologist because she had a peripheral neuropathy, which of course is one of the, the classic symptoms of porphyria. And it was that doctor who, you know, saw her 20 years after she first started getting symptoms, who was finally able to make the diagnosis. So it can be very difficult, you know, in part because drilled into our head is this fundamental truth, which is when you hear hoofbeats, it's going to be a horse. But it's not 
always going to be a horse. But, you know, because that is so emphasized, and appropriately so, but one of the, I think one of the consequences of that is that when somebody comes and we think, well, maybe it could be, nah, too rare. I mean, rare things happen. And if it happens to you, it's 100%. It's not like a one in a million chance. If you're the one, you're the one. You're Neo. You got it. <laughs> so, and people can't, people do have trouble accepting that. That, that this might be some weird thing, even if they know it. I give a lot of thought to reading you. I, I have all of your like articles. I'm, I'm, look, I'm looking for this collection because I have them all like ripped out. I ripped them out and I filed them away in different books. <laughs> I'm such a strange guy. But you know what my theory is also? Some diseases fall into the cracks of different specialties. You know, so oh, for example, yeah. there's not a, a porphyria. I mean, it could be like on a dermatologist disease, like, you know, dermatological porphyria. But a lot of that, you know, it's, essentially it's a hematologist, right? And, you know, but a lot of the symptoms present as GI symptoms. And right. the same thing with the, your recent one again, because I think you've done now two on mastocytosis, which falls within my specialty. You know, a lot of them, like in your the, the last article mm-hmm. this past weekend, was about she was having syncopal episodes, sweating, you know, again, not the things you typically associate with an allergic reaction. So that that's my take, that there are certain diseases, you know, again, of the zebras that fall into the cracks of different specialties. And then, of course, when you have the ones that have psychological, psychiatric presentations, which, you know, again, people just think everybody's, you know, the person's crazy. They could start being medicated with, you know, antidepressants when it's an underlying medical issue. Maybe I'm thinking about Whipple's disease. That was one of your other ones, too. It just, you know, it has these different presentations. So it's almost like they're going to the wrong specialist. And to me, that's my personal opinion about why the duration of some of these cases, which is really sad, you know, goes on for a long time. I think this is where, you know, and we're going to get to some other parts of your book, which are great about, you know, touch and hands on. But I think this is where AI is going to be very helpful to physicians because I always tease my, my patients. I said, I wouldn't mind. I mean, I love interacting with my patients, but I wouldn't mind having Dr. Alexa or Dr. Google behind me. And, you know, after I'm finished that I just speak in and say, you know, okay, well, this patient complained of these five symptoms. Also, their lab report shows these four findings. You know, please give me the top list of diagnoses. Do you, I, do you think that would be helpful in the future? We have that now. I subscribe to a service called Isabel. Oh, really? $175 a year. I never heard of that. And, you okay. know, oh, it's fantastic. Oh, you should uh, you should definitely read up on it or check okay, it out. Okay, I will. They give you a month for free, but it uses a natural language processor, and you can just list the symptoms and the lab abnormalities. The only thing you can't do is you can't put up put out no fever, no chills. You can't do negative things. But everything that's there, they ask your age, they ask the or the patient's age. They ask where the patient is, like in the planet. So they're actually I mean, Isabel is one. There's another one that's more ID focused called Gideon, which it's helpful if somebody comes back from a foreign country. So these things exist. That's not what you need artificial intelligence for. What you need artificial, because that's really just a... Well, it's like having a textbook that's giving you the key information. But like, again, the point of your work, which I still feel why the doctor is so critical. I mean, again, in our training is so critical, maybe even not to negate, but more critical than nurses or physician assistants are our intensive training to get that history and translate it 
so that we can utilize, you know, th- these other resources because we all can't walk around our Absolutely. brain all these diagnoses that, you know, unless you've seen these cases, you know, and you can't have seen them all that have that resource. I ended up doing a blog about this where I wrote about, you know, the boy that had the leg swelling and the long mm-hmm. eyelashes. And it turned out his grandmother helped in making the diagnosis. She, she, you know, he was going for like a year and a half, two years, after, I guess, recurring, coming back from Vietnam. And his leg was still swollen and he was in pain. Mm-hmm. And the grandmother said, you know, his, unfortunately, his mom had passed away. And the grandmother said, enough and enough. I'm going to Google. She Googled the things, came up with something. And then again, what she added was that she knew the, her daughter, his mother, had, had long eyelashes and I think had a leg problem also. And when they went to the doctor, he ended up looking up. There was some kind of genetic abnormality. So right. that's where I, I, I did I did a, hopeful, a funny little blog saying, you know, Grandma, Dr. Google helped with the diagnosis. So. Right. Uh, I think, and I, you know, I mean, they're, doctors are supposed to be irritated by their patients who Google their symptoms and come up with their own answers. I don't find that annoying. I think that that's an important thing for patients to do. I mean, who has more skin in the game than the patient? I What drives me crazy is when patients come in and you say, so do you have any medical problems? <laughs> you take any medicines? It's in my record. No, <laughs> don't tell me that. Those are the words I least like to hear. It's in my record. I don't think so. You know, I mean, I'm sure it is. But that's just, uh, that's, uh, I want you to know about it. It's your body. Yeah, absolutely. I like to say to the patients too, I think in today's world, what I enjoy in my practice, and I tell patients, because a lot of them Google symptoms and things, I said, I like that patients come really informed. And in some ways, we could almost be on an equal footing where before the doctor used to be up on the pedestal and the patient was down below. But I said, what I do hopefully offer my patients is over two decades of experience where, again, I've seen cases, I've seen outcomes to help guide so you don't go crazy, you know, Googling your diagnosis or your symptoms. But I think to keep people in the dark with all the technology we have today is, you know, is disrespectful of their input. And so I think it's a good thing. I do. Well, I actually think that when doctors and patients meet, it's the coming together of two different kinds of experts. I am the expert on bodies and diseases and pathology, but they are, in, they are the expert of their body, their symptoms, what they feel. And no, there is no test that can tell you how a patient feels. They're the only ones who can tell you that. And so they're the ones that know things that I know things that they don't know, but they also know things that I don't know. And it's only when we combine our knowledges together that we're able to come up with an answer. We're going to move on onto what makes a doctor a better diagnostician. We're going to have a little fun on this one. I remember in the 1990s when there were lots of medical uh, television series. There was ER, which was probably my favorite. It was Chicago Hope, and later, of course, now there's been Grey's Anatomy, you know, where everybody, all the doctors are fooling around in the on-call room, just like real life. Um, but this is the funny story. I remember back in the day, too, my mom telling me there was an interesting medical show called House MD, and you know, she thought I should you know, take a look at it. My mother went on to explain to me, she goes, there's this main character, Dr. Gregory House, played by Hugh Laurie, so brilliantly, who made all of these difficult diagnoses in the hospital. And she said, Dean, you know, he's a certain type of specialist I never heard of before. He's a diagnostician. 
So I'm silent for a moment. I said, um, Mom, all doctors are supposed to be diagnosticians. <laughs> but of course, after seeing just a few episodes, I was a fan captivated by his interesting medical cases. And of course, Hugh Laurie playing this erratic, brilliant, pill-popping medical savant. But I have my thoughts. I was just curious. Were there any qualities, because I know you were involved with it, that you truly felt made Dr. House a great clinician? Well, of course, he appreciated my cases, which is where he came from. So <laughs> I think that shows how brilliant he was. But no, I, I think he had encyclopedic knowledge. That's always great. But really what he had was a great team. I mean, look, it's Hugh Laurie. He was fabulous. When they first called me to ask me to be part of the show, I asked Paul Adonazio, who was one of the creators. I said, well, tell me a little bit about this guy. He goes, well, he's irritable and and arrogant and drug-addled, and he hates patients, but he loves diagnosis. And my first thought was, I didn't say this because I'm not an idiot, but my first thought was, good Lord, who would watch such a show? (laughs) Who wants to be his patient? (laughs) Well, there's that also. And then, of course, I saw it, and I saw that Hugh did such a great job of bringing such layers it was beyond what was written in the script. You know, just this sense that that underneath this crusty, funny exterior was this, you know, very sympathetic, empathetic, gentle guy somehow. <laughs> you know, as unlikely as that seemed. But, you know, I think that, you know, he was a good diagnostician because that's how the writers made him. I don't think that there was actually anything about him that made him a great doctor. He was smart and he read. To be a good doctor, you have to read every day. You know, one of my favorite doctors when I was, uh, when I was a house officer had a, a crawl. This is how old it was. It's when you used, to have these tr- you used to have words that came across your screen to keep your screen from, I don't know, doing whatever it is that screens do. And his said, have you kept up with the literature today? I'm like, what? Maybe this week, maybe this month, but today? But, you know, you have to read every day. You know, I think that that's what Taos brought to it. He also thought deeply about patients. But really, nobody could get through medicine in real life like that. I mean, right. medicine is a team sport. He had a team. Right, um, he did. He had a crackerjack team. But, you know, the part that I didn't like, I mean, again, this is just personal, because sometimes I had attendings when I was in training that would do this also. You know, as you know, Dr. House or Hugh Laurie, he would do a lot of it on the whiteboard in a conference room. And honestly, I found, and we're going to get into this a little bit as we move on to the physical exam, which I love what you do in the book with this, is, you know, it's really by being at the bedside. And Even for residents, I know when I've trained them, if we're able to obviously discreetly go over the case, but all that time that you're sitting around the patient's bed, uh, you pick up things. And I think that, you know, with House, again, it was all about, you know, you know, the excitement of ruling out these, you know, unusual diseases. Uh, But in real teaching and in real life, I think, you know, attendings that are able to spend more time with the residents in training at the bedside is where I think you really, you can pick up a lot of things. Well, really, in one of the very first shows, they were trying to figure something out. And Foreman says, well, should we go to the bedside and talk to the patient? And and House says, why, did the patient go to medical school? <laughs> yeah, that that summarizes it all, but it was a great show. 
It was a great show. It had great, you know, it had great writers. It had fantastic actors too. I they mean, did. you they know, did. well, a lot of them, Hugh just, a lot so of them still are in a lot of All series of now. So yeah, yeah. Of course, Hugh. But I heard Hugh Laurie's real voice, though his British accent. I almost, I think he was being interviewed by Charlie Rose or something once. I almost fell out of my chair. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah. I, was, I didn't even know he was British. Um, all right, let's go on to again one of your most interesting things as a doctor that I love is about the physical exam. Important or not so important? Of course, that's the question. And you put this forward in your book and mentioned about different, you know, medical doctors have brought this up. Is the physical exam worth saving? Well, of course, sometimes it can provide you with knowledge that you wouldn't know otherwise. And we ignore it at our peril. I don't think that, you know, there are doctors who think their stethoscope tells them everything. You know, my good friend, Sal Mangione, did I a bunch of studies work. in love the 1990s yeah. Yeah. about how doctors are no good at using their stethoscopes. They can't identify these unusual murmurs anymore. But really, now that we have echo, really the only question you have to answer when you listen to a person's heart is, do I need to get an echo on this murmur or not? That's the only question. Everything That's else right. is just for personal satisfaction. So I think that one of the things that's wrong with the physical exam is that we don't, we don't teach it right. The other thing is there's, there are very few, just like there are very few tests that will give you the right answer 100% of the time by itself, the physical exam is a way to answer a specific question. Just like a test, a piece of technology is a way to answer a specific question. If you don't have a question, you're certainly, the physical exam is not going to accidentally give you the answer. Well, right. it might, but right. you can't no, count on it. it's rare. You're right. So I think that, of course, the physical exam is important. Taking a history is important. Having access to technology is really important. And, you know, you work with what you have. Yeah, I, I want to just share a quick story because I, I thought that this is what jumped out of me about reading your book. And I love some of the, you know, the, especially in your book, the cases where some subtle physical diagnosis signs made a huge difference. And, you know, one story that I'll never forget was there was a basketball player. I believe his name was Reggie Lewis. He was a star basketball player with the Boston Celtics in the 1990s. And later in his career, he developed these syncopal or fainting episodes. And it happened several times. And the team doctor felt that he had a, hab, had a heart abnormality that would preclude him from, you know, finishing his career. He was at, actually at the height of his career at the time. But that's not the end of the story. So what happens in Boston, where we know we have Harvard Medical School, a team of 12 cardiologists, dubbed the Cardiology Dream Team, reviewed Reggie Lewis's records. And they determined that he had this unusual condition called neurosyncope, meaning that it was really coming from his brain, that it wasn't his heart, you know, and it wasn't life-threatening, and he could resume his career. And the tragedy of the story was a few months later, while practicing basketball in, you know, in a summer camp, getting ready for the upcoming season, Lewis collapsed on the court and died. And obviously devastation to his family and all the Boston Celtic fans. And what was interesting to me was months later, I think this came up in a legal deposition, that the lawyers asked the doctors on the cardiology dream team if any of them had actually physically examined Lewis. And the answer was no. All the doctors had just reviewed his scans, EKGs, you know, all those type of things. And when a doctor outside of the panel pointed out that if any of those cardiologists had just laid their hands on Reggie's chest, they would have felt his displaced heart. You know, when you have what they call a cardiomyopathy, the heart, because it's so large, moves from the typical place, you know, 
where it is. And that might have averted and they would have told him you cannot play the sport. So I, I think what you point out so often in the book, uh, especially where every patient tells a story, is that there are physical diagnosis signs that can make a huge difference. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the things I want to mention too, because this this gets into all this too. Like like you said, and I felt the same way in my training. You sometimes you always feel inadequate with your physical exam, as you mentioned. Like Sal Mangione says this too that you know, again, you can you know the physical exam will maybe help you sixty percent of the time if you're lucky, and and depends on what type of exam we're talking about. But uh, another one of our science physician writers, Atul Gawande, wrote a wonderful article in the New Yorker a few years ago, where he said, you know what, everybody needs coaches. Ball players have coaches, you know, all these people have life coaches. Mm-hmm. How come doctors don't have coaches? And what he did, which I found so interesting, was that he actually got a hold of one of the older surgical attendings who was, I guess, sort of semi-retired. And he said to him, would you mind if you watched me do oper- operations and, you know, give me some feedback? Now, again, as you know, and you point out in the book that so many of us as doctors, once we're a full, you know, full attending doctor, like nobody needs to watch us anymore. You know, we know what we're doing, can always learn. And it was interesting, Gawande's article, you know, it was interesting how the older surgeon would say to him, you know what, if you just tilted the the OR light a little bit this way, you would see the uh, surgical field better. And, and a couple of other things, which he felt made him a better doctor. So what do you think? Do you think we, do you think we need doctor coaches? Sure. Why wouldn't we? Wouldn't it be nice? Yeah. As you said, you put away your ego and say, where, you know, where can I learn? Where can I get better? And especially when we're teaching younger doctors, you know, because again, sometimes our insufficiencies, again, we want to hide, in, you know, in, and when we really, you know, need that extra experience to make them better. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think we all need coaches. You know, I read that article by Gawanda and I totally agreed. I mean, it's hard to find. It is. It is, you know, people have the time, you know, we're going to get into that too. It's always about time. It's about time and putting away your ego. I think by the end of this podcast, you and I are going to figure out what makes a a great physician. Uh, But I I think those are two, you know, two things. And of course, never stopping to learn. You know, I, I, when I teach the medical students and you probably do the same thing, I, I like to share with them the story. I always tell them the story. When I finished medical school, I was so sick of studying and taking exams that I swore, I said, I'm not reading anything else. Whatever I learned, I learned. And, you know, they laugh. And I said, but once I got into residency, once I got into private practice, I, I couldn't stop reading. It was like during the day I would see cases and say, gosh, if I just got a little better at this, I'll know it the next time. And, you know, the practical experience makes you want to be even more of a reader. So I, I think those are all the things. Because remember, a little bit of the theme is what makes a great doctor and... I think those are the subtle things that go into it. The other story I want to, as we're getting near the end, I want to discuss again with the physical exam. I loved your story about Stanley Wineapple, the blind physician. Again, I wanted to share a quick story that from personal. I have a very close friend of mine who is an osteopathic physician who's blind. He trained in Europe, and when he had to leave, it was a communist country in Europe, and he had to flee for political reasons. He came to the United States, and he lost his eyesight to something called retinitis pigmentosa, where your vision keeps on narrowing to the point where it looks like you're, you know, seeing through a pinhole. And he right, was, that's what that's what wine apple. Right, had. right. And he couldn't do retraining because that was out of the question. He wouldn't be able to, you know, read charts and do all those things. And it was interesting though. So he started doing massages, and he ended up getting his naturopathic license here. 
but I've gone to him as a patient and I know him, you know, when I referred patients to him, his hands are like a CAT scan. He finds things that sometimes they even get missed on an MRI because it has to do with the subtleness of, of the tissue. And I'm bringing this up because, again, obviously, hopefully we don't have to be blind to become great at physical diagnosis. But the fact that he was missing that sense, it, it augmented his perception and touchability as to make him, he's one of the best people I've known to do a physical examination. And, and just what's interesting too, I'll never forget reading in Andrew Wilde's, one of his books, he had a, an osteopathic physician, Dr. Robert Fulford, who mentioned that in his training, they used to give them a, a set of bones in, in, in osteopathic training. And they used to have them put a, a thin cloth over it and just feel the bones to get the sensation of what it, you know, of what the, you know, the contours and everything should feel like. And, and I also, I don't know from your own experience too, I find a lot of European doctors and doctors from third world countries, and you mentioned one like an Iranian doctor in one of your, your cases, uh, where they don't have this omnipresent technology, so they do have to rely more on their physical exams. So is that a little bit your sense or where you think the lack is, is occurring? I think that, you know, in the United States, we've been on a bender with our affection for technology. I mean, I think that the excitement was in the 80s and the 90s that technology was going to provide us with all the answers. And I think that, you know, we've had, it's been a long, slow recognition that that is not the case. And so, you know, I think that hopefully what will happen is that we'll get back to having more emphasis on the physical exam. And I think that's already happened. Abraham Verghese has put together the Stanford 25. And, you know, so I think that there are ways to reinvent this. I think that often it was not really taught in a classroom setting. I think that often the physical exam was picked up on the fly because doctors did it all the time because they needed the information. Now we've gotten so far down the road of not doing the physical exam that the teachers don't know the right exam. So we're having to teach it in a formal way. Yeah, I I love the quote by Louis Pasteur. I remember them saying the first day of medical school, I just wasn't sure what it meant. In the fields of observation, chance favors the prepared mind. And again, if you've gone over and over again reading, you know, materials and and again, you know, what I like to say to my medical students and residents that also look as in, at many atlases or photos because, again, it's not going to always jump out at you unless you've seen it before. And it's impossible to, you know, again, in a clinical experience to see so many different things. And, and the other piece of advice I think I've gotten over the years, which I think is really valuable, because, you know, what happens when we're medical students, if you remember, you know, oh, there's this unusual case and everybody, the little 10 medical students go running over to palpate somebody's abnormal liver or a lesion. And what we really need to do is examine hundreds of normals, if you agree, just so that you even see the, the variations in normality. Absolutely. Do you agree? And you know, the other thing too I learned from some really good, again, clinicians, you know, a lot of them are osteopathic because they, they do so much hands-on. It's very important too to compare limbs within a patient. Sometimes in a thinner person, the swelling or, or may be less pronounced than in a heavier individual. But if you compare it to their other side, that's where you notice you know, the difference. I think what you do is really make us all humble to realize that this physical exam is so important on so many levels, connecting to the patient. I mean, most patients really talk to them. They really do want to be 
appropriately examined, and it, it brings that connection closer between the doctor, you know, and the patient. It's true. I like to, you know, even when I don't have to touch my patients, you know, a lot of times when you're, right. as an internist, you spend a lot of time managing chronic diseases, and a lot of times the chronic disease is not something that you need to examine repeatedly. You know, so if you're helping somebody get a handle on their diabetes or their right. hypertension, there's not a huge physical exam component to that. But I still always try to examine some part of my patient just to have that kind of touch, even if it's just taking their blood pressure myself, so that that is part of our relationship, my familiarity with their body, their their familiarity with my touch. I think that that's an important part of the intimacy between a doctor and a patient. I'm going to mention the last thing that, again, from reading all of your material, I think I'm becoming a Lisa Sanders expert, that jumped out, but not after until I read, read it so many times, that I think one of the answers to being a, becoming a great doctor is communication with other doctors. And, you know, it happens a little bit more in residency when you're surrounded by a lot of doctors, but a lot of us, when we go into private practice, we get radiology reports, we get pathology reports. And we don't always speak to those doctors. We don't we usually speak to another doctor about a diagnosis that we're considering. I'm kind of fortunate. I have this really smart doctor in my practice, my wife, Dr. Ricky Mitchell, and we discuss cases. And I, if you notice in your stories, in a lot of cases, it's where a doctor, again, either if they're in training, they go to a, a more experienced doctor or even a doctor in practice. You've mentioned at meetings They'll talk to a colleague that they respect and say, look, I got this case that's troubling me and I don't want to make of it. And then sometimes somebody with a, you know, get a, a fresh pair of ears in this case because they haven't seen the patient has an idea of the diagnosis. So uh, I wonder if you agree with me. I think I think communication between doctors could be one of the most important things in arriving at a timely diagnosis. Absolutely. You know, the National Academy of Sciences, as it's now called, did a report on diagnostic error in, in 2015. And one of the things that they, one of their very firm rec recommendations is that pathologists and radiologists be more included in, in the diagnostic process. I mean, instead of just reading the report, to actually speak to the radiologist and to actually speak to the pathologist, to go down and look at the slides and, and talk about it. And think about it together. You know, radiologists have, I would say over the last 10 years, the, their workload has quadrupled, quintupled, dectupled. You know, I mean, they, they're expected to read more, more x-rays, more CT scans, more MRIs. And so it makes it hard for them. But it used to be, and it still sometimes is, that the most thoughtful differential you'll get is from the guy who read the CT scan. So that's, that's a skill set that they have and it's just waiting to be accessed. So, you know, I always encourage my residents to go downstairs. It doesn't have to be the radiologist who read the report. I mean, that would be, it would be great if they could walk you through what their thought process was. But another radiologist looking at it will be able to tell you something about it that you didn't know. I mean, they're real experts in a, a field that is not immediately accessible to us. It requires a skill set that we just don't have because it takes working at every day. Right. I, I think one of the privileges of being in a good medical residency is having access to all these people within one building. 
where you can, I remember I used to enjoy, you know, when, you know, after we, let's say, presented a case, the whole team would go down to the radiology department or to pathology department and look at a slide, discuss the case with these other doctors. It just makes it more memorable and I think hopefully makes you a better doctor. So, yeah, I, I just, uh, but I think it's, you know, it's interesting if you look at in your stories, it's, it's type of like sort of this underlying theme. You know, when these tough diagnoses are made, it's from somebody, again, sharing the case with another doctor, not doing it alone. I, I never, I don't think there's one case or story that you have where it's this one super doctor who makes the, the diagnosis. It's typically a team effort. Well, let me just say, if, if, if you walked in, you were sick, you walked in and somebody immediately knew what you had, that would be a really short column. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So thank God for these tough cases. Well, we're coming to the end of the hour and this has been a super treat for me. I hope for our listeners, they really appreciate everything that's been discussed. If you want an entertaining and medical useful book to read on the beach for the next few weeks of this hot summer, please order on Amazon or go to your bookstore and, and get diagnosis solving the most baffling medical mysteries. And be sure to be on the lookout to download on your Netflix her new show, Diagnosis. I'm going to be lecturing to a group of medical students, about 200 of them in New York in the next two weeks. And I'm going to make it mandatory that they read it and watch her show. Dr. Lisa Sanders, thank you so much for making the time today and reminding my listeners why tuning in to this podcast, The Smartest Doctor in the Room, can have such important changes to your health. Well, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure, Dean. Thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com. 